It's TV Talkaholics in your ear holes every single month. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. I am already on the Zoom. This is David, by the way, in case you didn't know. Uh, already on the Zoom with, as you've heard me sing his praises before, my dear close personal friend, Ken Reed. Hello. Hello. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. No, any anytime I get to watch a, a rewatch a '70s TV movie, I, I always jump at the opportunity. Yeah, I feel like there's kind of another podcast there, like a, just a just a TV movies podcast, but potentially, but, but yeah, but unfortunately, you have to watch all the TV movies, and some of them are just. Ugh. Yeah, I see some of them are more ripe for like a watch along podcast where yeah. you have like a group of people, you, you kind of need that communal uh experience. But uh, some of the best TV movies were made in the 70s and I would put this in the in the list. Uh, I I would too, the girl most likely too from November of 1973. I believe it was when you and I finally met in person this past August when you mentioned in passing that you liked it. And I was like, Oh my God, I want to do this. And, and Matthew doesn't want to do it. What's his problem with it? He refuses. What's his fucking problem? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we get the Bostonians together and say, yeah, Matthew, that piece of shit. And want to watch a fucking movie. (laughs) You're better than me. Huh? But I don't know what his problem is other than he just assumes it's going to be one of those, you know, we watch it and say it's good, but ironically, and and I, oh, I like someone I touched, maybe, and and the <laughs> Cloris Leachman movie called Someone yes, I Touched. Also, yeah, yeah. What does he got a problem with Stockard Channon? Stockard, <laughs> what a great name, Stockard, for a Bostonian. Oh my lord, almost as good as Mark Harmon, but Mark you know, Harmon, Stockard Channon. <laughs> you said that. Oh, Mark so, Price. Mark. <laughs> Uh, so who is it that Oprah's old fitness coach, Bob Harper? Oh, I don't know him. He's one of the, I think he's the make the connection. The Oprah make the connection book was, was when ah, Bob Harper you. was his thing. But yeah, Bob Harper. And I'm like, did he own, did he only work for Oprah because his last name was so similar to Harpo? Yeah, <laughs> that's why that was a, he actually had to change it legally. It was a prerequisite yeah. for working. His last name actually was Rabinowitz. At right. birth, but it's like if you're in the Chinese opera, you're 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 Sifu, you take <laughs> on their last name. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yes, I tried to drop casually in conversation that uh, you and I had the joy and pleasure of meeting in person when I was up in Boston this last yeah. August. We didn't get our Sashua Bapai though. We got a no, no, we, we stayed in the it. city, uh, which you know, but we had a, a lovely Greek meal. We had a Greek meal, uh, and you introduced me to Union Street Donuts. Yes. Uh, Holy oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, their holiday selection this year, outstanding. Ah, they did a cranberry, yeah. rosemary, uh, ah. filled donut. They had a they had an amazing spiked eggnog donut. Oh, uh, man. It was just, yeah, it was wonderful. But it was great to meet you. It was great to enjoy some food and talk stuff, and we talked about the cons and you getting back to 
stand up and everything. You did quite a few. I, I was just listening to your year end wrap up. Thank you for the shout out, by the way. Oh, I appreciate welcome. that. Since we gave you shit the one year you forgot. So you yeah. feel like you it are happens. obligated. <laughs> that was it was Matthew, not me. Matthew Fair did enough. that. Fair uh, but you and you were talking. You were talking about Union Square Donuts on it. Too, yeah, you? of course. Yeah, I, think you, I, you were. I, I can't go 10 minutes without talking about Union Square Donuts. <laughs> and I, I, I'm here to verify that you are justified. You're totally justified. Uh, but you were talking about how you've been doing a lot of stand-up uh, gigs this year, opening for Todd Barry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I Todd's taken me out for like a week or so, at least once a year since 2009, shockingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Is he, kind is he of, a Bostonian? No, no, he's a New Yorker, but okay, uh, I, I met so. him years ago in New York, like 2007 or eight. Um, and he was doing some New England shows and uh, he decided to uh, to hit me up. So just as we're continuing to just BS and catch up and all that, because it's been a while, it's been since the beginning of the year yep. since we talked to you, you had a horrible long bout with COVID. You and, you and your wife uh. both. Yeah, it was awful. October was the first and only time I got it. She she brought it home. I blame her. Um, oh, yeah. But we it's both got packs. Bitches, yeah. I'm telling you. Well, she what they, works. What are they good for? Really? I know. What are they? She good works for? in an office a couple of days a week, so she's exposed to things more than I am. But um, yeah, she, she we both got Paxlovid. She got it like four days before me, and when she was done with her Paxlovid, she was pretty much fine. Um, I got it four days after I did the Paxlovid, but then I was testing positive for like a month. And then I had really bad brain fog for like a month and like extra depression that really just only cleared like somewhat recently. Oh my God. I say cleared, but like diminished. Yeah. I was going to (laughs) say at this point, I'm all, I feel like I'm always in a state of brain fog. Yeah. It's terrible. And I don't know if it's a post COVID thing or it's just that I'm 55 years old and I'm getting old, but, um, yeah, I had it too. This was my third go round. Mm-hmm. I had it November coming into December, right after Thanksgiving. And uh, my, I'm very lucky. My COVIDs have all been pretty mild, and uh, and it it fell in a good spot where it wasn't too devastating. Like to catch it now between Christmas and New Year's, as an actor trying to cover shifts and get people to work for you is just it's a nightmare. But that's the time when you'd get it after like having to be around people in the holidays mm-hmm. and Thanksgiving. Yeah. So it's yeah. uh kind of adds up. Yeah. But I'm lucky my my bout with it was pretty mild. And I tested negative like after five days. Yeah, I that's was most people. Oh so lucky. So I was able to go right back to work. And now best part uh, when I caught it two years ago, it was at a New Year's Eve party. And I'm like, well, not going to catch it this year. Yeah. Well, because I'm, I'm vaccinated, by the way, <laughs> caught it. I'm I'm vaccinated and yep. still caught yeah, it same. just like just like with the flu. And that's probably why it was mild. Good God. What if you hadn't been vaccinated, brah? Oh, I'd be dead. That's, that's just crazy to think. But anyhow, we are glad that you did not succumb to the post-pandemic pandemic pandemic to electric boogaloo thank you so that you could be here to enjoy the girl most likely to yay yeah before we start though i do need to do a quick housekeeping sure. and thank a listener a listener named mike h mike h sent me a little christmas present sent me a little thing i i, I can't say what it is but it was through paypal mm. mm-hmm. so uh he sent me a little christmas present just to show his support of the show and i really appreciate that mike thank you happy holidays right back to you and a peaceful prosperous healthy new year to you and yorn as matthew would say yorn <laughs> you and yorn not, 
not Pete Yarn. No, not not Pete Yarn. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's talk about the girl most likely to, which is on YouTube. A yep. beautiful transfer. I will yeah. add. Kino Lorber, who is a great uh, physical media company. Um, a few friends of mine work for them and a bunch mm-hmm. of people I know and I've had on the show have done commentary tracks for a lot of their Blu-rays. Um, they have a Kino cult channel on YouTube and they post full movies up there. Uh, and there's a really good library of movies. And and this is one of them. Yeah, this 1972, uh, made in 1972, aired in 1973 TV movie. Um, the the uh, script writing debut of Joan Rivers. <laughs> Yeah, her first, like, writing a movie credit. She had been writing and writing for other comedians and writing her own. She was already a fairly well-established Yes, uh, oh, of course. But even if her name wasn't on this script, like, you know she wrote this script because most, aside from a lot of the things that she's obsessed with, like, most Mm -hmm. of the lines are just, like, sound like her her onstage things. (laughs) Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Her voice is is very prominent, especially... um, stalker channing's character how she does laugh at herself like how the the pre-transformation stalker kind of has those one-liners and quips that that make her very endearing she's a very very appealing likable protagonist she feels very well um defined because Mm -hmm. she is so much joan rivers so she's not necessarily like a one-dimensional hey i'm um you know, I'm ugly and then I'm pretty kind of ugly duckling thing. She's like very, they give her a lot of background. They make her smart. They make her have a a very good sense of humor that clearly has uh, developed due to her having to navigate how she looks. Um, You know, it it, it makes sense. Well, actually, uh, Ken, let's start getting a little academic as I like to do. And uh, I'll read a little bit from Joan Rivers' second memoir, Still Talking, which came out, I think, in 91. Maybe, Uh, but she writes about the conception of this movie. And so I'm reading her words now. It is on page 87. In those first months in California, I was so experienced that I was not surprised when ABC bought my script for a movie of the week. It was called The Girl Most Likely To, and the idea started with a blind date I had when I was a freshman at Connecticut College. The boy was from Yale, and he was standing at the foot of the stairs in my dorm as I descended, 132 pounds of chubby pulchritude, dressed in a gray flannel dress and little gray flannel shoes to match. He turned to the girl who had fixed him up and said, disgusted, why didn't you tell me? All evening, he ignored me. It was a weekend, so he had to come by the next day. He arrived for breakfast at 1.45 p.m. just in time to say, well, let's have a cup of coffee. Gee, I got to catch my train to New Haven. I had been waiting since 9 a.m. I transferred after my sophomore year to Barnard College in New York, and this boy married a girl I knew there and became a doctor. Years later in California, that girl called me, and I invited her to a large supper party I was giving by the pool. This same boy walks in with her, fat now and bald, 40-something. He had no idea I had been 132-pound Joan Malinsky. He was all over me. Everywhere I went, there he was, obviously a cheater, following me into the kitchen to get me alone. Can we meet for lunch? Isn't that a pretty dress looking down like cleavage? You're much younger and prettier than on TV. There was a lot of let me help you, and his arm would touch my arm. As his car pulled out of the driveway, I told everybody the story. And then now this is Joan quoting her own words. I should have said, does the name Joan Malinsky mean anything to you? And whipped out a gun and killed the son of a bitch. Yeah. 
my friend Kenny Solms said, that's a movie. Yeah, it's very interesting. So this is, it's a comedy, um, a dark comedy. I'd say there's a lot of suicide and suicide talk and murder, obviously, but yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> the, the, as a horror fan, the interesting thing about one of the many interesting things about this movie is it predates the slasher craze by at least six years. Yeah. And the structure of it is exactly the slasher formula so like oh. inciting incident somebody is ridiculed and a, a prank goes wrong something like that and then they come back and seek revenge on all the people that wronged them i mean we're literally talking about hundreds of slasher movies this is the plot of the movie um and so there, there's that piece and really the first the first sort of modern teenage horror movie that this would Close, most closely aligned with is Carrie, but that was 1976. Mm. So, uh, you know, even that this predates that the, the other thing it reminded me of was the abominable Dr. Fibes from 1971, uh, which is Vincent price. He, uh, his, some surgeons try to save his wife. They've both been in a car accident. She dies. He's horribly disfigured and presumed dead. And then he spends the rest of the movie um, dishing out the biblical plagues in punishment to kill all the doctors that didn't save his wife. I and remember it's very that. Very similar to this. Yeah. Yeah. That ran. I remember that running like on the creature double feature. It's great. And stuff it's when great. I was a kid. I remember catching bits and pieces of that. Because uh, the creature double feature on Channel 56 was, it was definitely a thing. And we would often tune into it, but I wasn't like glued to the TV the way I was glued to Laverne and Shirley or The Facts of Life. I was definitely a comedy kid. And uh, so I, my knowledge, you know, you are you are such a horror movie kid and you are, I'm quite a bit less versed than but you Dr. are. But Dr. Fives is, is a dark comedy as well. Like if you like this movie... I Go watch Dr. Fives. There's two of them. There's the Abominable and Dr. Fives Rises Again. They're very tongue-in-cheek. They also take place in the 20s, so they have this art deco Ooh. 1920s aesthetic. Vincent Price uh, speaks through putting a plug in his neck that comes out of a gramophone, and he has a clockwork jazz band, and like it's it's very, like it's just visually, it's really interesting, but it's a, it's a very, very good movie. Uh, the guy who made it worked on the Avengers, and it's kind of got that vibe. Oh, interesting. Cool. Well, we're talking about this movie because of its connection to the facts of life, of course. And we have to address that uh, the coach at the college of the football team is the wonderful Chuck McCann discussed with you, Ken, when yep. we had you on the show to discuss season nine, episode 10 of the facts of life called It's a Wonderful Christmas. And, uh, so Chuck McCann is the thing. Initially, I thought Reb Brown was the connection. Oh. Am I crazy? I can't find Reb Brown in this movie, even though he's credited as a football yeah. player. Yeah, you asked. It's tough though because there's a lot of like '70s blonde jock football players in this. Uh, yeah, in, in all those scenes, so it, it very well could be. I don't and think but, he has any lie. I know but he that's it. He must have had something that landed in the cutting room floor because you don't get a credit as a football player if you don't have a line, but. I mean, Rep Brown is, he's a big, muscular dude. Yeah. Initially, I thought the Larry Wilcox role was Rep Brown because they're very much the same physicality as far sure. as big football players. But uh, Rep Brown was the bouncer in the at the Chuggalug when Joe and the girls go there on Joe's first uh, arrival at Eastland. And I thought, oh, Rep Brown is the thing. Right. He would He would later be Captain America in the 
uh, Captain America it, TV it was movies. Hot off the heels of your Hunter for the Future. Yeah. <laughs> wow. If you, if you ever want to see him in fur bikini bottoms for the duration of a film, that's your movie. And who doesn't? <laughs> but anyway, uh, Red Brown, I, I, I thought he was the connective tissue here. Thank God we have uh, Chuck McCann. And uh, let's uh, let's start talking. Well, I guess the the this is the point where I should uh, put you on the spot, Ken. And we've kind of already alluded to it, but say, give us the TV guide synopsis. I, I will allow, since it's a TV movie, I will allow a close-up box length okay. synopsis. Okay. Of this. Um, an ugly duckling played by Stockard Channing is remade into a beautiful swan after a car accident and takes revenge on those who wronged her. Oh, perfection. That's why he's the TV guidance counselor, <laughs> listeners. Because <laughs> this movie, it's it, it has a Twilight Zone vibe, but the villain pretty much gets away with it. It's very bad advice. This movie is make a suicide attempt. And you'll wake up beautiful mm -hmm. and then kill everyone who was mean to you. And it'll pretty much work out. Yeah. Now, this is a good, good uh, point of debate. Do you think it was a suicide attempt or do you just think she was upset and driving recklessly in her upsetness in the rain? Do, do you really attempt. think? Because they reference it like two or three times. She makes jokes about it like two or three times earlier in the movie. Oh, does she? There's some suicide jokes. Yeah. Oh, um, I missed those. I'm sorry. So, so that, that sort of, I was like, yeah, this, this, uh, this is well seated. Yeah. Wow. Um, because I think if you eliminate those or somehow could, you know, cut them out, if you felt you wanted to show this on television now and not trigger anyone, I think you could do it and you could absolutely write it off to just an unfortunate oh, sure. accident. Yeah, for sure. Uh, is all that, but Yeah. Let me for, say first, I am, I'm a very shallow person. Okay. So I love a transformation. I love yeah. a makeover. I love, I, I watch extreme makeover, the, the, the plastic surgery edition. I love botched, um, <laughs> I, any type of a physical makeover. I like, I like the property brothers, any type of a transformation that is completely physical. I don't give a shit if you're still a garbage person underneath. I want to see you with big old puffed up lips that look better than the skinny ones you had before. At least one former TV guidance counselor guest has been on botched. <gasps> Can you say who? Uh, Heather Elizabeth Parkhurst had some weird thing happen with breast implants and okay. apparently was on botched. Okay. I've <laughs> been mean, told I've not seen, seen it. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and that's it. And they, and they do botched is great because it's literally them fixing fucked up plastic yeah. surgery. So it's great because uh, on one hand it's, you know, it's a pleasant transformation. It's always positive, but it's also a cautionary tale. Yeah. So I, I love botched. Uh, so anyway, any type of a transformation where someone has a, a you know, a makeover uh, type of a deal. I love it. So when they take the bandages off of Stalker Channing, and she's not just pretty, but when she is in a full face of makeup yeah. with upper and lower false eyelashes. Yeah. Yeah. I you lose could, my shit. You could argue, aside from the eyelashes, you could be like, oh, well, these they've like tattooed the makeup on, the lipstick, the eyeliner. That's a thing. Yeah. Um, but no. no. Uh, the, the thing is, that's just, that's what amuses me. And the thing is that, it is uh, 
defensive makeup. It is definitely doing everything they can to make her look as pretty as Stalker Channing can. And she is beautiful. She's only 30 years old here. She's gorgeous. Uh, but she has very round eyes, very small yes. round eyes. And of course, with those, you always want to make them bigger and do that. So upper lashes will always help. But the fact that they've put the lower lashes on, but they don't run the contour of her eye. They just put them straight on, straight out yeah, to give the impression of more, more eyeball between them. But in a couple of shots, they're off just by a couple of millimeters. The, the yeah. scene where she's walking down the hallway and one of the doctors, I think, swats her ass or something. And oh, yeah. her- her reaction is looking directly to camera, like it's a security camera almost. That's a right. point where it's like, oh, makeup artist, you just, oh, it's just a little bit off. And, you know, or or cameraman, you could have cheated the angle a little to help that. Well, keep in mind, this was airing in 1973 on a TVs where the biggest TV somebody have might be 27 inches. You're and right. would have been in 480 or 240p uh at most and we watched yeah. a blu-ray transfer of it on a yeah. screen like my computer screen here is bigger than 27 inches yeah no no you're right you're absolutely right that i i do forget that a lot that you know this and and again listeners if you want to watch the movie this isn't one of those shitty three generations lost transfer from a bad vhs this is crisp and clean uh, so I, I highly recommend it because I can't stand it. There are movies and shows I've wanted to do on the podcast. And I'm like, I I can't in good conscience say to people, watch this because the quality is just so, so terrible. Fair enough. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that mo moment, the, the, the transformation moment just... Uh, it, it just amuses me to no end. And God knows who does not love an ugly duckling story. Truly. Yeah. It it really it, it's this this goes hand in hand with the eye of the beholder the Twilight Zone episode or mm -hmm. um you know the the movie Seconds or you know it, it it has all those eyes without a face the French movie uh you know it's it's right right in line with those mm -hmm. yeah well the movie as we talked about was written by Joan Rivers she did collaborate with another writer named Agnes Gallen this is literally Agnes's only IMDb credit. So I she don't know sounds, if, she sounds like a pseudonym. <laughs> yeah. And, and Gallen there, there have been producers named, isn't there Sandy Gallen, Sandy Gallen presents. Why do I, yeah. feel, I feel like I've heard the name Gallen before. It might've been the wife of a producer and was just like, well, you know, give, give her a writing credit and he'll produce the fucking movie and it'll get right. made. You know? just, it sounds like an anagram to me. Yeah. <laughs> like it's someone's pseudonym. Agnes Gallen. Wait a minute. Let's yep. look at it and see what it looks like. It is, uh, it's Harvey Weinstein. Oh yes, no. That's, oh. I knew it. Terrible. Although Harvey Weinstein, the first film he ever produced was The Burning, which is a slasher film with this plot, which uses this device. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> Who knew? But at this point, Joan was enjoying popular stand-up career. She uh, had already been on many variety shows, talk shows, game shows. Uh, you know, when the first five seasons of Carol Burnett were released as the the lost episodes of the Carol Burnett show, and those are all streaming on Pluto right now, you have many, many appearances of Joan Rivers on the show. And it is so funny because it's, you know, it's motherhood, it's pregnancy, it's childbirth, and it's all women-related things that, you know, even Phyllis Diller didn't go there in her comedy. Like, she didn't talk about actual being in the delivery room in the stirrups. That was... right. 
very scandalous and brought her a lot of attention in its time for being so uh, completely uh, uh, unexplored terrain in the world of comedy. Yeah. And she would uh, like Phyllis Diller. She would often, she would, well, not like Phyllis Diller was always the butt of the jokes. Phyllis Diller was always, I'm ugly. I'm so hideous. Um, And Joan Rivers sort of did a brilliant thing where she sort of made you think that's what she was doing, but really she was criticizing everyone else. Like it was a really (laughs) brilliant um, sort of way to sneak in uh, those sorts of things in her stand of sort of using the, the format and vibe of things people were already used to. Yeah. And and this does predate, I mean, before the, you know, the, the cranky, I fucking hate old people and yeah. fuck the, that's, yeah. that's later Joan Rivers. Yeah. This is the one where, yeah, she, she'll do self-deprecating comedy, but that was her out to then turn around and criticize nurses, stewardesses, yep. all the pretty, the pretty girl professions. Yep. Which we know she secretly coveted, but she was sure. always an ugly duckling or perceived herself to be an ugly duckling herself. And uh, yeah, so and she, saw and saw uh, uh, enlightenment through surgery. <laughs> yeah, oh God, and so <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think in one of the, I think it's still in the the still talking the second memoir where she talks about one of the times she went under the knife, she got a facelift and. Something it was like she had three procedures planned, and she was like, "We came out of surgery. I came out of the anesthetic." The doctor forgot to give her the eye job. He forgot, so he's like, "Okay, I owe you an eye job next time because it's going to be next back. time." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's interesting too. Like in in you know the early seventies, nobody was okay with saying they had plastic surgery. Nobody. Oh no um, no, no no no. So it, it's interesting the way that she was able to get around that was that it was correcting an accident. It was, it was, you know, no fault of her own. Um, It's it's a very interesting, you know, absolving her of wanting to be better looking. Yeah. And, and literally the hot, the hottest point of her career was when I was a teenager, it was probably around uh, 81, 82 when it's just, she just exploded. It's like the time was just right. And and she even writes that she's very circumspect about, even in 1991, when she had her morning talk show and had won an Emmy for it. But at that point, her husband had taken his own life. They had been mm-hmm. through some shit in her family. Even she was like, this was the biggest and most famous I ever was. Like mm-hmm. she even understood that, she never will ever be again that famous. And, and I appreciated that. That's always a good thing. I'm told that other memoirs like, uh, like David Cassidy's and, and things are, are them bellyaching that they didn't stay as famous as they wanted to. And well, unlike most of those people, she actually wrote her books. She's a writer, uh, yeah. you know, it's not she, her a collaborator though. Richard Merriman is the co-author sure. of both of her, her books, but yeah, no, no, it, she does come from a place of actually being Truly, she knows how right. to tell a story, right? She knows how to um, win, win people over and uh, arc and a redemption. And like, yeah, she, so yeah. that's not surprising. I don't think guys like David Cassidy were remotely self-aware enough to realize how badly that makes them uh, yeah. look. And also, uh, you know, having talked to a lot of guys, especially and really guys only um, who are once very famous and now aren't, they tend to be totally baffled as to how it happened and they're mad yeah. about it. Whereas women kind of go through life expecting the fall. 
And so, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're always ready for it. It's a very different outlook. Yeah. If you're smart and you have a showbiz career, you understand that if you are able to, like, how many times have you talked about Marla Gibbs kept a day job, a separate yeah. job through most of the run of the Jeffersons. Yeah. And Joan Rivers, I mean, she was busting her ass up until her death. Like she'd mm -hmm. fly from the set of a TV show to go do stand up and like constantly write. Like she was um, obsessive. Yeah. Yeah. It. I was going to say workaholic. Like I think, you know, almost to the point of there was some um, uh, mental illness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, John Waters is the same way. Like if he has an open date on his calendar, he freaks out like, they, like he needs to have something all the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, she she's like that. And uh, the other thing in the 80s, I remember, of course, the big thing was that it was in 1983. The big deal was she was named the permanent guest host for Johnny Carson whenever mm -hmm. Johnny would take time off from The Tonight Show. That was a big deal. Um, number one, to have a permanent singular person and not a rotating docket, including your Gary Shandlings and Jay Lanos and yep. uh, all that. So Rob that was Reiner. a big deal. Rob Reiner, yeah. So that was a, a big deal in and of itself, but also a woman, woman, yeah. women in, you know, <laughs> in the, uh, the late night landscape that still is, uh, something that hasn't really fully been, uh, leveled that, that playing field. But then a few years later, when the Fox network was starting up in 87, they offered her her own show and she said, yes. And Johnny Carson took that as a personal betrayal. Yep. And he blacklisted her and no one, if anyone did her show, they could never be on the tonight show, which actually held a lot of weight at that time. Mm -hmm. So she was getting like Z list or like she couldn't get guests. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was pretty bad. He was a real bastard to her yeah. and other people, but specifically yeah. and only her. because she wanted to work. She wanted, she, she had the chance to have it. And you but know, she didn't, she didn't go to him and ask if it was okay. Yeah. He never blessed it. That was the thing. It was like, and her response was, we had great on-camera rapport, but I, when I worked, he was not there. We were not yeah. friends. Right. You know, they were barely colleagues, really. Yeah. And, and that's and true yet, with a lot of people in Carson. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yeah, Carson, no, no. It was, he was so good on camera and so likable and affable and the set up a joke and, you know, uh, that's all things. But yeah, by all accounts, they, you know, they mask it under he was, well, he was fiercely private. But no, the, the real reality of the situation was he was kind of aloof and shut off and not very personable when the yeah. cameras weren't rolling. Yeah. So then that show failed. That was difficult. And then, uh, and then, you know, her husband, who was also kind of her manager, Edgar Rosenberg, he took his own life and she yeah. writes about that in the memoir and that was devastating. So she didn't really start to bounce back with her daytime talk show. And then later her fashion stuff, her red carpet stuff, her QVC jewelry and all that. That's, that was all far ahead of her at this yeah, point. That was third act stuff. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So at this point she was just a successful appearing on television comedian and she and her husband had recently relocated to California, trying to market themselves as a producer writer team where Edgar would produce right. a, a stuff that she would write. And they, she does write that they really struggled. They thought it was going to be easier. They thought her TV appearances from the New York side of TV would buy them something. And it, and it really wasn't, there was really no currency. Well, if you look at the New York side of TV, which <clears throat> Carson had moved to LA by that time, but New York was 
talk shows, game shows, um, not scripted stuff aside from soaps. Yeah. And so to then shift to California with aside from the fact that it's a very different mentality, um, different things are, um, appreciated over where New York at the time, um, you know, to then be like, here's scripted and movies and things that to them, they're like, this has nothing to do with what you were doing. Why would yeah. we hire? So I'm not surprised by that. She was, I mean, she was kind of a, it's weird when she talks and wrote about herself in the sense of being an ugly duckling. I mean, there is so much of her in this character of Miriam that Stockard Channing plays getting back to the movie uh, that I, I look at pictures and I'm like, okay, she wasn't, I mean, she certainly wasn't an extraordinarily attractive younger person, but I look at her and I think she she's kind of like a Tina Fey where she's just you know, darker eyes, thicker eyebrows, darker hair. Well, yeah. I mean, she had some mental illness there. Like, yeah. no doubt, you know. So, so definitely some dysmorphia where, yeah. because she, she, I mean, she wasn't a tall, skinny, blonde bimbo with big boobs. And that's what everybody wanted. So, you know, the fact that over time she colored her hair and uh, would, you know, we know that she, after after Edgar's suicide, we know that she went full on bulimic. Yeah. to control her weight because and, and addicted was... to to surgery which killed her. Yeah, yeah, and then the surgery, yeah, changing her face constantly as she aged. It was, but it was the, pretty crazy. The interesting thing about this movie is that it almost has the message that um people underestimate you because of how you look or they discredit you because of how you look, but you can still earn their respect and um earn earn their uh friendship or earn their thing through skills because she she paints this sucker Cheney's character as someone who's had a million jobs, has a ton of skills, is mm. very smart. Um, and even to the point where the reason she ends up marrying the detective that's been investigating the case is that he's so impressed with how she was able to to kill all these people. But that's completely undermined by the fact that none of that mattered until she got hot. Yeah. Uh, exactly. That's that's putting it beautifully. The the love story. Yeah. Spoiler alert for the end is that Ed Asner, as the role of the the detective in the end of the film, he finally catches up to her. But the big thing is that it's that thing where he's been intrigued by her methodology, right? Beforehand, not knowing what she looked like until the very end, and basically they fall in love because he says you're you're so smart you have these skills what she looks like made no difference and i forgot about the early scene when she's stuck at the drive-in yeah. when they have their first run in when when she's you know having to walk home and all that stuff and they beautifully play it that there's just the tiniest little something that you know had things gone differently that they could have been together in her current state yeah he's in, impressed in her, that she her, her prior that. state i guess yeah she knows the penal codes and all that, but he has, he has a weird, he has a bit of advice for you. Be less smart. Yeah. He says to her, which is, you know, and again, you can't prove that her looks don't matter because she's good looking when he mm -hmm. comes to this realization that like, Oh, I you could have looked like anything, but it, the movie doesn't sell yeah. that. Yeah. Agreed. Why didn't he ask her out when sure. <laughs> he find her in the road? Yeah, that's true. And and they do a great job with the makeup. I mean, sometimes when you, you you know when they'll do makeup or or try to do prosthetics, it will look so fake, and you know, okay, that's coming off. 
but the way they did it was so perfect because uh number one thick eyebrows always scraggly hair somehow her hair improved after surgery yes. i don't know what they Surgical did but... hair improvement yeah <laughs> but the deal is uh she always has the scraggly hair definitely the the eyebrows the eyebrows work for a lot but they put some type of a of a ring or stuffing into her nostrils to make them look bigger and and to make her nose look off and asymmetrical and her nostrils asymmetrical and the looking I'm trying to look at the rest of it I'm like did they like do a Marlon Brando and stuff cotton in her cheeks and I'm like I'm not sure that that's not just her the way she just always yeah. tucked her chin and and moved her mouth I know I know you can't see me listeners but I'm doing this but the fact that I think a lot of it was her, her playing ugly and Stalker Channing is a phenomenal actress. Yeah. She, she, a lot of its physicality, um, it still always looks like Stalker Channing. Like you can yeah. tell it's Stalker Channing. You're not like, well, this is two different actors. Um, it, I think they take it just up to the line. Like it's almost Quasimodo. Yeah, oh, yeah, borderline, borderline. They, yeah, they could have if they pushed it just that little bit more, it would have been too much. But they, they, they get right to the line with it. Yeah. Now this is five years before she would explode on the scene as Rizzo in Greece. Uh, but this is she only has a couple of small uncredited appearances. This yeah. is really her first big break, Lead. her first starring role, and I say, wow. Yeah. Although she's. The other interesting thing here is so many of the characters are very lightly coded as Jewish, including her. Like, oh, that's the other thing. Like, especially for what people thought of as like Jewish at the time, which mm -hmm. is very sort of New York-y. And like, yeah. let me tell you, I don't know. Hey, yeah. hey. Like, it, like the doctors are all that. She's very much like that. Like, yeah. which is very different from how other people act. There's a very New York... Um, but they're never like, oh, she's from New York. Like, she's just like, oh, let me tell you, I don't know. All right. You know, it's like the those kind of weird um, trappings that are associated with that, which is somewhat intentional, but somewhat not. I think part of a lot of it is Joan Rivers basically just casting someone to play her. Yeah, um, of course, but it's, yeah. it's a, it, it adds a weird element to it. Yeah. And Stalker Janning isn't Jewish, I don't think. No. But I the characters like very yeah, very New York, definitely yeah. very very talking like New York, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. So yeah, she is phenomenal, not just because of the physicality and the transformation, uh, but on top of that, then when we get into the sort of ridiculous uh, cartoonish side of the movie, when she starts exacting her revenge, we have her literally. There's what is it? Five people or four people that she that she kills. Uh, let's see the doctor, the, there's the a football the player, the football the, player, the, the doctor, um, the plumber, the, the, the plumber four. So it's four. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. Each and uh, three of the four, she does a different dialect yep. wearing a different wig. And yep. has to, at one point the, the blonde, the blonde bimbo with a Southern accent. And it's almost like an intentionally bad Southern accent. Of course. Because Larry they, Wilcox is so the, the stupid jock. Of course he'd fall for it. 
but they establish she can act because they have her in the play earlier in the movie and they have her doing a southern accent and yeah. sort of so they so again that that adds to her skill set and i do want to mention before the transformation one of the things that impressed me a lot was they never make her pathetic she's not like no. a horny boy crazy pathetic she she's just like she always is a little sarcastic as a as a some armor there but she's still like pretty confident yeah <laughs> like it's 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 a very um unusual uh character in that way because normally this kind of character wouldn't be portrayed that way yeah no she's not pitiable at all in the beginning part she just keeps she is who she is and she has her sense of humor clearly it's his it's her armor and then you know, then finally she does at one point finally have the breakdown where she does cry and say that this there is no excuse for being this cruel. This is really yeah. not fair. And which is and it, correct. Like yes, that's the right yes. reaction. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, so let's talk about some of the uh, uh supporting players here. Uh literally, registration day, the very first scene, the first line is spoken by a young college student. In the in the, among the group who will go on to have some more lines and some more presence, Annette O'Toole. Yep. Yeah. Annette O'Toole, married to Michael McKeon. Michael McKeon. Yes. And I didn't know that till very. I think when yeah. I was researching this, I went, "Wait, what?" She's also in some great made-for-TV movies. She's in one called The Best Legs in the Eighth Grade, uh, wow. which is a very uh, fun TV movie. And of course, It. She's in the It miniseries and mm -hmm. some other stuff. Yeah. And of course, best known for being Lana Lang in Superman Three. Yes, uh, but you know, younger generations will know her as Martha Kent in Ten Seasons of Smallville. Well, everybody knows her from Cat People. Cat People, yes, that too. Yeah, and she was already a veteran here. I was looking; it was this was not her first uh, first rodeo uh, with a movie, so she was already there, and and just just gorgeous. Just again, she could have easily been in Carrie. Yeah. After this, I mean, so easily. Uh, the Big Dumb Jock is played by Larry Wilcox before he would go on to be on Chips with mm -hmm. Eric Estrada. Mm -hmm. Moose. His character's Mo name Moose. Moose. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, uh, let me see. The the cheerleader that she's also roommates with, who is just such a counter. God. Yeah, she really is. Yeah. Suzanne Zener, Z-E-N-O-R. The character is Heidi. She is all over the 1970s in sitcoms and then would go on to be in 196 episodes of Days of Our Lives as Margot Anderman Horton. Of course. She looks like a Margot Anderton Horton. Oh, goddamn right she does. So, yeah. Not um, Margot Ander Tim Horton. No. <laughs> Tim, what did someone say? Coffee? Tim yeah. Hortons? Timmy's? Got to go to Timmy's. I'm, I'm half Canadian now. Got to have my Timmy's. Of course, we mentioned Ed Asner as the cop. This is during his run as uh, as Lou Grant on the yep. original Mary Tyler Moore show. He's kind of the biggest TV star on the show. Yeah, which isn't unusual. A lot of made-for-TV movies would utilize uh, talent from their sitcoms and other shows that they had mm -hmm. basically under contract. Yeah. And and yeah, and he's and he's not in it a lot. He is definitely a supporting player. He shows up like midway through and yeah, yeah. he he mm -hmm. he worked a few days yeah that's it it wasn't this didn't take a lot of time out of his schedule that's for sure no. yep so herman the man to whom she is betrothed the the plumber because her dad is in plumbing 
Her mom's a librarian and her dad's a plumber. And yeah, they, they're a plumbing <laughs> dynasty. They should have the, the, been. Like the dynasty, which is amazing. That's such a Joan Rivers joke, isn't it? I feel a little bit bad for his character because up until the scene where she kills him because he's going to cheat on his wife, he's just kind of a dumbass. Like he, it's not his fault that he's not like in love with her. He's known her since they were kids. Like, you know, he, he hangs around with her. He visits her in the hospital. He's an asshole when he goes, or yeah. like kind of a dick, <laughs> but it seems like that, like, I could see them having that kind of relationship because like the stuff he says is funny, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah. you know, it was, it was nice to come see you drink your meal or whatever, you know, maybe I can come by and see, watch you drink your food again sometime. Like yeah, yeah. that's her. I mean, it's, it's clearly cause it's all written by Joan Rivers. So all the jokes are in her voice. Like, I, which I think is one of the weaknesses of this in yeah. that every joke sounds like a Joan Rivers joke, regardless of who's saying it. But He's the only other character that's allowed to be funny in the movie. Oh, I see what you like, mean. Like everyone yeah. else doesn't joke. Like he jokes with her, you know, he's able to like, they're like ball busting jokes and they come across as crass, but they're still jokes that given what we know about her character earlier in the movie, she probably would have like, you know, gone back and forth with them with jokes like that. So yeah. that I was kind of like, all right, he's not likable, but whatever. Like, I was like, but why kill him? Like he wasn't it, it, because he said, told her he's getting married to somebody else. Like that's not his fault, but I think they recognize that and then add that extra layer of making him a, a, a cheater uh, before yeah. she kills him. But I still don't, I don't think that works because she's already made up her mind, obviously because she sets up this trap for him to drown because he can't fix the plumbing, yeah. but she's, she sets up to kill him already. And that's the only one of them that I'm kind of like, mm, now she's kind of crossing a line where this person didn't, I don't know. Uh, yeah. He, he didn't do anything nearly as bad as the other people. I, I will say, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think he was still pretty bad though. He, he wasn't cruel to her, but he was always dismissive of her like but he was, was there then yeah i, you know I, I guess. mean like and yeah oh, oh there was a fifth there was a fifth the, the boy in the pool hall there were five. Oh, that's right yes yes the I boy in the, the pool exploding hall. the exploding yeah. ball that's right uh anyhow herman the fiance is warren berlinger is his name he has 119 credits in a 61 year career nothing a standout just lots of roles all over everything um so then the uh, there's so many, so many supporting players here. Even the doctors who do the the thing on her. Oh, talk about misogyny! Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. They take the bandages off. It's like, hey, hey, you got any plans for later uh, on? Huh? Yeah, we did good work here. Yeah, uh, the doctor on the right is Carl Ballantine or Ballantine. Sixty eight credits in a fifty eight year career. Best remembered as Lester Gruber on all one hundred and thirty eight episodes of McHale's Navy between sixty two and sixty six. And the other doctor, here's an interesting note, is actor Joe Flynn, 99 credits in a 29-year career, uh, best known as Captain Binghamton on all 138 episodes of McHale's Navy. Yeah. So, so that would have been a little TV nod repairing these guys together. Exactly. Um, this thing. Yeah. So we have a little uh, McHale's Navy reunion for the doctors. That's, that's a little fun nod. I was never a big McHale's Navy guy, but I did yeah. appreciate that. Uh, so... Of the other big, quote-unquote, big names we got, we get Jim Backus as the theater teacher teaching a lecture in an outdoor amphitheater. 
yes. in, a, in a sport jacket and a tie. I'm like, oh, yes. guys, come on. Not in 1973. I mean, he's an older guy, maybe. Like, he looks <laughs> like he's in his 60s. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but Gilligan's Island had been off the air for a while, but he was still very well known, uh, of course, Jim Backus. And uh, the other D, I've got two guys I want to talk about here. Let's first talk about the this doctor uh, guy that sets her up and, you know, humiliates her in a uh, surgical auditorium. Yeah. This, do those really exist, Ken, or do we think that's a TV trope? Do, no, surgical... they do. I mean, they would, especially if this is presumably like a teaching hospital, like, cause it's college related. Oh, you're um, right. So those you're do right. exist. Yeah. Um, and it's gopher, right? It's Fred Grandy. Yeah. Future congressman, but future gopher on the love boat. Republican Fred... congressman, I think, right? Uh, yes, I believe. Yes, oh, yeah. So, yeah. He's an yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, where is Fred Grandy? Because they, they do a little bit of a switcheroo there where he's presented at, which I think is well done, where he's presented as kind of a nerd. The other guys are busting his balls and she sees like, oh, a fellow, a fellow traveler in this yeah, world. Yeah, a fellow, wow. yeah, yeah, shit upon person. They they seem like, like he is genuinely n- nice and you're like, oh, this is so great. And then when he turns out to be just as bad as the others and, and later by the time her surgery's over and she passes him in the hospital corridor and he doesn't even recognize her of course not yeah you can tell there's just the tiniest little nod that oh he's one of the boys now like they've yeah. accepted him that was part of his initiation of of proving himself to them that one really stung i think that one stung yes. the most. yeah because he was probably the one that had the best promise of all of them uh yeah fred grandy was i thought he had been i thought he served in congress longer than he did fred grandy was only the u.s representative for iowa from 87 to 95 that's I, still eight, eight years. Eight of years. That's eight years. Eight years of congressman. But I thought, you know, and I guess maybe he did other local or. He was in the uh, House, right? Yeah. That's four House terms. That's four. Yeah, I guess. But I thought that he was, did it longer or had more positions. He was anyway. one of the first notable television people that got a, a thing like that. So I think that's why I probably stood out more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so here's an interesting thing. We have this other guy who is always with Jim Backus. His name is Charlie. And yes. he's kind of uh, hanging on Jim Backus. So he's clearly in the theater department. And later at one point when they give the part to Stalker Channing and Heidi is mad because Heidi wants the role. Yeah. He says to her from sitting in the back, something along the lines of, give it up, sweetums. The professor wants her to do it. Yeah. And he's sitting with his legs crossed, wearing a crocheted doily-like shirt with yellow flowers on it. Uh, oh, okay. I see what you're doing here. He's Queenie. They've made him Queenie. The gay character. Yeah. He's the, the, the veiled gay character, thinly veiled. So this actor is Dennis Dugan. And I was most surprised when I looked him up. Did you look him up? I didn't look up Dennis Dugan, no. 67 acting credits in a 52-year career. Also a producer and a director. The name is familiar. 40 directing credits. Many of them big name TV shows until 1996 when he made his feature film debut directing a little movie called Happy Gilmore. Yes, he's in all the Adam Sandler stuff. That's why he looks familiar to people. And also directed Big Daddy, Jack and Jill, Grown Ups, I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, Don't Mess With the Zohan, Grown Ups 2, Just Go With It. It's like, holy shit, he's basically... 
the on-hand director for Happy Gilmore Productions, which is Adam Sandler's production company. Happy for Madison. Happy, Happy Madison for Happy Madison Productions, I mean, yes. You're you're you you skipped over his, I believe, de- directorial debut, Problem Child. Oh, did he do Problem Child before yes. Happy Gilmore? Directed both the Problem Child films. Wow. So the big always talked about on Gilbert Gottfried's <laughs> podcast that were the biggest films, highest profile films that Gilbert Gottfried was in, right? Although, do you know who wrote the Problem Child movies? Who? Scott Alexander and Larry Krasinski, uh, Dana Gould's friends who wrote Ed Wood and The People versus OJ and oh like a ton of God. other stuff. And that was their first. Wow. Uh, and People versus Larry movie. Flint too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so funny. Amazing. So that was a, a surprise to discover that this guy in this little queen and then little role is the queen sitting in the back of the room. I'm like, what? Yeah. I did look to see if he still continued on. Like he hasn't done like the, the murder mystery, uh, Adam Sandler movies. He hasn't done the, the most recent of the, no, of he the, did the, the core ones. Yeah. The yeah. sort of, yeah. And of course, Chuck McCann as the coach, it's literally one scene, one scene. And he's just brilliantly Chuck McCann. God yeah. bless him. Just all that thing. And, uh, when Ed Asner says, did the victim, meaning Larry Wilcox, did he have any enemies? And Chuck McGinn says, no, I loved him like a son, like yes. a big, dumb son. Dumb son. Yeah. Which, which reminded me of, uh, you know, no, no real reason why, but the scene in, um, Heather's where it's, I, I love my dead gay son. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the den mother, Ruth McDevitt at the dorm. Yes. 92 credits in a 27 year career. She was in the birds and the parent trap and Mame. Yeah. She's a very noticeable person along with again, uh, Annette O'Toole, but yeah, I feel bad. We've been talking for a very long time, but let's, let's get more about, uh, let's get more into the movie. Talk to me something. Let's just bring up a subject about the movie. Ken, that you want to talk about overall. I think this movie is obviously feels dated fashion wise for the most part, but, But, uh, in tone and subject matter is at least a decade ahead of its time. Uh, yes, yes. Black comedies. I mean, when, what would you say is the sort of, uh, classic era of the black comedy and the anti-hero? Cause Miriam's kind of an anti-hero in that. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. In in, in the classic like mythology sense, the anti-hero is the one who does the wrong thing for the right reasons. Right. And she does the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, She's, she's not justified as the, yeah. Yeah. Justified as we want to believe and comedically, thank God it is a comedy. Yeah. Uh, We can, we can play along with it and at least understand because the tone of it is, is I think spot on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, but could easily turn into a slasher movie until sort of the midway point. Um, Mm. it has the vibe of like a movie, like prom night. It has that kind of vibe or or, or terror train, um, something like that. Um, it, the jokes and the characterization and that sort of stuff is about 10 years ahead of its time easily. Um, but again, you know, Dr. Fives was the year before. And, you know, the, one of the reasons Dr. Fives feels timeless is it's, it's set in the twenties. So yeah. it manages to be garish seventies, but set in the twenties. Um, it, it definitely, you feel a little bit awkward seeing Joan Rivers, uh, neurosis and mental illness 
all over this movie. It's yeah. like not even it's not yeah. even thinly veiled. Yeah. It's you know all the things we would know about her. Um, so that's a little uncomfortable, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, but the jokes work. Like the, I couldn't think there weren't really any jokes that like culturally made me cringe that I'm thinking of, which was unusual for a comedy from 1972 yeah yeah i feel like there was one or two let me see if i can find it or whatever you know what the tone reminded me of is um uh paul bartell who people probably best know as an actor he was in a bunch of roger corman stuff um mm -hmm. he made the movie eating raul uh which was probably his most famous movie but his directorial debut he did it short but his, his cinematic directorial debut is a movie called private parts which i believe is from 72 Mm -hmm. And it has a very similar black comedy tone to it where for the first half of the movie, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Like you're, it could easily turn into a full on horror movie. And, uh, this, for some reason, part, partly the aesthetics in the year that it is, but it reminds me of Paul Bartel's private parts in a strange way, which is a strange statement. Huh? Yeah. Cause as I, as I started to say earlier, I'm trying to think, what, you know, like when you say what's what's a great black comedy uh, as far as con contemporary as in in my lifetime in the 70s coming forward, I'm 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 blanking. I can't. Dr. Really Strange think. Love is always the one that comes up is. Probably yeah. The, um, yeah. Which is um, the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, John Waters movies like this. This could have easily like you could see John Waters directing a remake of this. Like oh Serial Mom is yeah. has, sort of shares a lot of DNA with this. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Desperate Living is sort of a very similar, you know, it's cranked up more. It's more cartoonish. But this is like a slick, like a slicker John Waters kind of vibe without. Yeah. The, the a a polished, yeah. yeah, definitely um, more polished, yeah. But but in that realm, you know, um, those are the things that sort of come to mind. I'm trying to think of other dark comedies that, but but really, those are probably it. Mm -hmm. Again, it's it's a uh, it's a low concept for the mm -hmm. most part. Um, there's a 1950 movie that this is very similar in plot to, and I can't remember the name of it now, um, but I believe that's a drama. Uh, mm -hmm. it's called like swapping faces or something like that. But, um, you know, it, it, it's much more grounded. The characters are actual characters for the most part. Um, aside from the murder victims, aside from Harold, who I think is actually a fairly well-drawn character comparatively. Yeah. Um, but the rest of the characters are pretty much just like cliches who exist to be murdered much like yeah. a slasher movie. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, and it's also presented the narrative is, you know, that classic, like, uh, here's me. I bet you wonder how I got here. Well, let me tell you, you know, it's first yeah. person narrative, which is again, something very much that a standup would do because they're used to storytelling on stage. Yeah. They're used to being the first person. So it, it, um, that in that regard, it plays to her strengths as a writer. Cause she's writing what she knows, yeah. but it's also a limitation in that it's very evident you know yeah like you say you've you've talked about show uh, tv shows and sitcoms where the voice of the writers is too homogenous and anyone can say any of the lines 
Whereas you look back in the facts of life, it's like you cannot give Joe's lines to Blair and vice versa. The characters yeah. are better drawn. Although um, sometimes Natalie and Joe, they would write too similar, especially in the later seasons, they would be the sarcastic person, you know? Yeah. And there are sometimes jokes that Natalie will do. And I'm like, that's a Joe joke. Or like, yeah. that's a Natalie joke. Um, you're getting lazy here, guys. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're right. You're right. True. Oh, I found one. This isn't really offensive. This this wouldn't cancel the movie, I don't think. But when she's in the hospital and she's in a full body cast and they make sure to point out that she's been busted up enough that she can't eat food. That's how they yeah. talk about the weight loss because she's also padded to be chunkier. Right. right. Uh, but she says something about um, being depressed, thinking about the cruelty of all the people, how she longed for a normal life with a husband and kids. But that probably isn't going to happen because who'd want to sleep with a mummy? other than a drunken Egyptian. Yeah. Which yeah. is such a, like a Lenny, like a Lenny, not Lenny Henry, uh, Henny Youngman. That's a oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Joke, but I'm, yeah. Uh, take my wife, yeah, please. It's, it's very, it's very Borscht Belt. And again, it has that like, who is going to do this? You know, yeah. it's got that, that, that the, the, the cadence. Is yeah, exactly. yeah. 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 But the fact is she still has the sense of humor and that's the, that's the interesting thing about it. And, uh, like you say, if, if anything comedically, it, I guess this age as well come comedically because it is so old school. It was not trying to be contemporary in its right. humor. That's not Joan, Joan Rivers brand. Uh, there is one seventies tastic scene. Oh, it's when it, more so than when Miriam is in the dorm room. It's when Ed yeah. Asner is going and asking questions of the girls and the den mother. That's when we really spend some time in that dorm room and really get to explore the space. Yeah, and the giant oh my poodle. God, the green floral wallpaper with the hounds, the giant poodle, yeah. the hounds tooth. Uh, the wallpaper has like a houndstooth background. It's yeah. ugly. Everything is like harvest gold and avocado green those those things even even the 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 um crocheted it looks like uh, top this with the daisies on it that the gay guy was wearing <laughs> even that is like oh that's so which the listener can't see but yeah uh yeah <laughs> oh it's, my God. again i think it it benefited oh, the story insane. that soccer channel's character amazing. wasn't cool and liked stuff that kids wouldn't like like was a librarian because it made her not contemporary in any way even when she was playing characters to murder people it was it reminded me a little yeah. bit of the movie fade to black if you've ever seen that um Fade to Black stars Christopher, the one from Breaking I'm Away. Not. Christopher, who's also in It with uh, Annette O'Toole. Um, I can't remember his name now. Christopher Dennis? Christopher Dennis? Dennis Christopher. Dennis Christopher, that's his name. Oh, Dennis Christopher, okay. Yes. Um, and he plays this sort of put-upon, nerdy, uh, slightly kind of coded gay kid who lives with his mother. And... Um, Don, no, it's not Don Johnson. It's um, uh, Mickey Rourke is in it. And he plays this guy who really needles him. And Dennis Christopher is a big movie nerd. And when he snaps, he kills all these people, but he's acting as people from movies. So like he's being Jimmy Cagney and he pushes his mom down the stairs. He dresses oh. up like Dracula. I got that. I mean, that's from 81, I think. Um, yeah. It's a very interesting movie. But I got that with her characters. She's kind of playing people she's seen in things. Like the nurse is like a character she saw in movies. Or, you know, yeah. the, 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 it's, the, so the that, English makeup artist coming yeah, in she's, and saying, she's I'm doing, afraid you're not the image right. our company wants. And, she's doing impressions of people that she's seen in movies in sort of this like fictional life, which I, I like that aspect of. Yeah. Um, I also like that the sense of humor 
carried over to the murders in that they were essentially deadly practical jokes, every single one of them. Yeah, yeah. So there was like a specific comeuppance that was tied to sort of what they did to her, but also kind of like their character. So that sort of also thematically worked. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, it's, Fred it's, Grandy it's, is killed when she sends him in for unnecessary surgery. Yes. And the cheerleader is dies when she does a backflip off of a, a balcony. Yes. And the plumber Exploding drowns. Yeah. 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 The so guy it's hits, all... hits the eight ball and it explodes. Yeah. And and the um the football player jumps out of an airplane. That one doesn't quite parachuting work. and his parachute doesn't open. Yeah. That's yeah. probably the most. Uh, you know, I guess as a daredevil, I I don't really get it either. Dumb guy. The plumber one works because <laughs> it's almost a proto-saw kind of thing. Because she technically gives yes! him a chance to save himself. Which is also from Dr. Fibes. At one point in Dr. Fibes, yeah. he, he implants a key in this guy's wife. And he's like, this key will unlock this device um, if you can take it, like, remove it from your wife surgically in time for the, you not to die from this thing. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. Um, and so that was interesting. But yeah, yeah, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of other movies pre and post in this, which I think also is why it's enjoyable. Yeah. And and I think what you were saying is how the fact that you're right, structurally, it does mirror so many things particularly that came after it that it still does hold up. I think it's I think it's delightful. The second half of it once she starts doing the killings and the murders, visually they maybe could have gone for some creepier angles, maybe some lighting. That some still of that could have for TV. Yeah, and they're trying to make a comedy. You know? Yeah, I mean, I it's think still trying why. to be a comedy, but they they could have I think they could have taken that a little further and it wouldn't have wouldn't have hurt it, but right now it's fine. And uh, and I liked, like you say, the um the the narration element of it. I really like the fact that it saved the twist for the end, where the beginning yeah. of it is you see a priest performing a wedding, and you see a bride and a groom, and she says, "This is me fulfilling my life's greatest dream, my wedding day. I always wanted to be married." And then at the end, the reveal is that she's marrying Ed Asner in jail while she's still handcuffed to a security guard. It's two twists. Cause you're like, Oh, it's the Ed Asner's the twist. But then you're like, Oh, there's a second one. And that kind of gets you. Yeah. Um, also I'll say, because this is a TV movie, the script structure works really well for this. Like it's clearly written with the structure of a TV movie in mind, or at least edited that way yeah. so that it works. Cause it's very tight. It's, it's 114 minutes. Uh, you yes, know, so 90 yes. minutes of TV is usually 105 minutes. So that's not even like a two hour movie with commercials. It's very tight. And, the commercial break structure works because it's so episodic with yeah, the like that yes. this. it really works with this structure. So I imagine watching this with commercial breaks, it would still work just as well because it's structured. Yeah. Correctly. Yeah. I believe it was 90 minutes when it ran. Which is a um, weird slot for a for a made for TV movie. Normally they'll they'll you know push it out to two hours. So yeah, they ran uh, it from eight thirty to ten on ABC. By the way, yeah. Actually, this gets to a thing I typically cover earlier on, but I can talk about it now quickly. November sixth of nineteen seventy three. What else was on? What else could we have watched that night? Um, and uh, I should have told you to pull the TV guide. Damn oh, it. I could have too. I should have told you to pull it. Damn it. I See might have. Was... Hold on. Hold on one second. Yeah, November sixth um, of seventy three. Oh, do you think you? Oh, it's right if you have it scanned already. Yeah, because I believe. Um, Was there a close I've up? Seen the ad, I've seen the ad for this. Oh, November I would love it if you could find it. Nineteen. God, what was I thinking? Duh. 
Yep, got it right here. 73? Oh, my God. Yep. Um, oh, please, please send it. One second. Well, while you do that, I'll keep talking here, okay? Yes, yes, sorry. Um, uh, on CBS at 8 o'clock, Maud, and then at 8.30 was Hawaii Five O. And then at 9.30, they would rotate shows, either Shaft or Hawkins, which was a legal murder mystery drama starring Jimmy Stewart. It only <laughs> ran eight episodes because he was like, I don't like TV. And then on ABC, the thing that pre preceded this was a, a sitcom called Temperatures Rising. And it was a medical sitcom starring James Whitmore and Cleavon Little. And this, okay. has, this has the distinction of it was created by William Asher and Harry Ackerman who also did Bewitched, and Bewitched had just gone yes. off. And they created this, and at the same time, they also created the Paul Lynde show. Yes. And the network said, we got to cancel one of them. So they canceled the Paul Lynde show. I don't know if James Whitmore was fired or left of his own volition, but then Paul Lynde became one of the doctors on Temperatures Rising <laughs> in the second season, and then it still got canceled. Appropriately enough. What, what night of the week was it? A Monday? To, uh, Tuesday. Yep. So I have it right here. Um, so here is the write up, the actual write up from TV Guide. Yay. <clears throat> the girl most likely to. Comedian Joan Rivers wrote this black comedy about the trials of an unmercifully ugly college girl trying to land a husband. A surprise ending caps the movie. <laughs> mm hmm. Spot on. Nice and good. And there's a full page ad before it. Um, <gasps> if you want to see the makeup. So it's on uh, the PDF I just sent you. It's on page 46. Thank you. God. And it I'm... says introducing Stockard Channing. There I go. And then as Ed Asner and his character, they just have him as the detective, even though his character has a name. Yeah. Ed Asner as the detective. Cool. Okay, I well, also I will... love there's an ABC movie. This is getting into totally different territory, but on uh, after that movie on ABC, so that aired from 830 to 10. Mm -hmm. I just scanned this issue um, for an upcoming episode. So. Oh, oh, exciting. Oh, did this come up? Did you talk about it? Um, oh, no, this episode already came out. It was with George, uh, the antique nomad, mm -hmm. George Higby. Um, and I, I can't remember if we talked about this or not. You you might have. Now that, I, now that I'm trying to think, I'm thinking maybe you did mention it. We might have, yeah. So then uh, continuing 830 movie of the week was this. And then at 10 o'clock, Marcus Welby, M.D., and then on NBC, we had uh, a show at 8 o'clock called Chase, which was a crime drama starring Mitchell Ryan. Okay. At 8.30, I forget this is if this is a show or a movie or a pilot, uh, a show called The Magician, which starred Bill Bixby as a stage illusion. Oh, yeah. That was a show. illusionist. Uh, his name is Tony Blake, a playboy philanthropist who uses his skills to solve difficult crimes as needed. So this would have been... The pilot movie, I guess. Yeah, that went to series. He was a huge magic nerd. Oh. Um, the funny thing is that they basically remade that show in the UK as a movie, as a show called Jonathan Creek, where a stage magician solves mysteries. Huh. And they tried to do this again in the mid '80s with a show called Black's Magic. That was um, it was Hal Linden and uh, Bernie Capel. Oh, Bernie Capel? Uh, no, uh, not Bernie Capel. Jack. Um, no, what the hell's his name? He was on MASH. Oh, Harry Morgan? Harry Morgan. Harry, Harry Morgan. Morgan plays uh, Hal Linden's dad. Okay. And they're both magicians. This sounds familiar. Crimes. Yeah. That I've heard. That I have absolutely heard. Wow. Okay. So, um, 
Uh, where was I? And then at 10 o'clock on NBC, police story. So uh, not a lot going on here as far as, you know, in the 70s when I was, this was like, you know, the early, early happy days. This was a little early for me because, I mean, I was only, what, I was only uh, five when this came on. So yeah. it wasn't until th this uh, made the rounds till the girl most likely to made the rounds in syndication and UHF stations that my mother pointed it out to me sometime where she was like, oh, you, you, you like Joan Rivers. <laughs> you're, you're uh, going to be a homosexual. I'm pretty sure <laughs> you like Joan Rivers. Uh, you would probably enjoy this movie. And sure enough, uh, she did. She was right. So, yeah. So what else do we have to say? Any, any parting words or last facts or anything? I'd recommend it. It's a good movie. It's a rare, a rare um, instance in 1970s of programming sort of geared towards women that isn't a romance condescending soap. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, you know, uh, sort of like the movie Heathers and this kind of, it has that kind of vibe. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a lost gem, I think for a lot of people, if you're a John Rivers fan at all, but even for slasher fans, this is, this is like a made for TV slasher. But yeah, I'm with you. I, I can't sign off on Rabbit Test. I'm going to give it another shot and we'll see. That's a, that's a bit much. And also it was a terrible uh, directing experience for her back, yeah, you know, backstage no behind one the fun. camera. No yeah. one had fun. But for this girl, most likely to, I'm telling you, there are, you know, it's recommended. I mean, I'm not sure I could give it a five, five talkaholic chips, but it's a solid oh. four and a half uh, and I still enjoy it much more than I expected to. Yeah. Yeah. It, it holds up on rewatch. Mm -hmm. So very true. Well, Ken, thank you again so much. Your knowledge, your insight, your analysis always adds something new to the show. And that is thrilling because I believe it or not, I do get tired of living in my own brain and listening to the sound of my own voice. You and me both, man. I'm the way about me. So it's nice <laughs> to get out of it a little bit as well and hear someone yeah. else. Well, good. I'm glad. So, of course, TV Guidance Counselor, look at the links in the show notes. I always post a link to your show. Thank you. Now, over 600 episodes. Yeah, close to seven. Yeah. There. You, you're on a long road trip? You're driving cross country? <laughs> you're on a 35-day-long road trip where you don't sleep? <laughs> There's some content for you because I say, if you like this show, you will love TV Guidance Counselor. And uh, yeah, so as always, I'm always happy to have you on my Zoom. I'm thrilled I can call 2023 the year that we actually met face-to-face. -face. Yep. Still got to get that ba pie. Ba pie and uh, holy cow ice cream. We'll put it on the list. Oh, and holy cow. Okay. Did I tell you I want to take you to Peaceful Meadows in Whitman? Have you ever been? No. Oh, yes. You know what? I have, but not in a long time. Yeah. Near the Toll House, where the Toll yeah. House used to be. Yep. Yeah. Toll House burned down. So Into just a plaque now. Yep. So as always, Ken, thank you so much. And thank you listeners for listening, smooches and goodbye. Mwah. Yep. Thank you. And have a good new year. And happy yeah, new year, know. friend. Talk later. Bye now. Oh my God. You've caught me again. What? Where, where the hell is he? Where what? the Matthew, wait, you connected. Are I you said, kidding me? I sent you the link and said, stop in and say hello. We we just hung up. You like you, we just, you just missed him. The oh one time, David, <laughs> you, you do a zoom room and you do a podcast that's less than two hours. And this is what I walk into. 
<laughs> I know. I, and we He's talked a lot. He's gone? We talked a lot. And, and oh. you know what? You're going to be really, really kind of disappointed too don't um, tell me he was shirtless don't tell me ken reed was shirtless i won't be able to take it uh he was in a tank top stop it right he now. was in a tank top and he had this new thing that he did with his hair so he kept reaching up to his hair so that he kept lifting up it so just giving me full-on shots of his armpits god damn it david yeah. almeida yeah I know. You have my phone number, David. <laughs> this is why you have my home address, David. <laughs> this is why you could have sent up a smoke signal. I would have walked off stage. How dare you? At, at Walt Disney World, you would have walked off stage in the middle did of you, a show. Did you make him remind the audience how tall he was and how big his feet are? So, uh, funny that you bring up the feet. He, don't even um, tell me. I don't even want to for, know at this point. So for Christmas, uh, his lovely wife, Rachel, decided no. to get him a pedicure. No. So Stop it. his feet, he, he was like, I have my first pedicure. I said, really? How did it come out? Picked up, showed me, put the foot right in the can. I got full top and bottom. The full, size 12s. Yeah. Full shot of the feet. And I'm just like thinking to myself, Oh, if only Matthew had wanted to be here to talk about this movie, he could be enjoying this. I have never been so hurt. <laughs> I have never been in all the years, David. I was there from the beginning. <laughs> I was there before Ken Reed was even, was even, was even, was even, Ken Reed was even. And here you are. <laughs> Having a full-on conversation about a movie I had no interest in watching and no interest in talking about. I hope that podcast is one of the least listened to. I'm going to say it. And that's my way of hurting, Ken. Because when you say to Ken, I hope your podcast is the least listened to, that's how you get them. Oh, <laughs> oh wait a minute. Wait, wait, what am, I, what am I saying? It's a Zoom call. We recorded it. I have video. Wait a minute. I'm going to pull up. Let me pull up the video. Hold on. I'm, I'm going to need you to send me that in a private I'm gonna, wait a minute, message. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'll share the screen. I'll show it to you right now. Oh, my God. I can't play. Duh. We have a Zoom call. Wait a Jeez. minute. And, um, oh. Jesus H. Christ. The H stands for Horatio. Oh. Oh, shit. The file is corrupted. It didn't, it didn't record. <laughs> I got the audio. The show is saved. Thank God. But no, it looks like the video file is... Ugh. This is file. why I don't trust Apple, David. <laughs> this is why. This is why I'm PC all the way. <laughs> oh, you asshole. What? It's, my, it's I... not my fault. Mm. <laughs> you were busy. You said you wanted nothing to do with the show. Busy. And I... I was working, David. I said, you said, you said. I will be, we were, we are recording from this time to this time. I got here as soon as I could, David. I rushed off stage. I have, don't have a stitch of makeup on. <laughs> and I rushed off stage. And this is what I'm greeted with. I, I'm offended. And okay. that is all. And I hope your listeners are offended as well on my behalf. <laughs> oh, well, wow. That's I'm, all I'm saying. And I I'm, wish you a happy. 2024 in whatever you decide to do but i will not be involved 
I'm so glad you broke in on the call to to abuse me thus. Well, I am so glad I again <laughs> I'm driving for Christ's sake. And I got on the call as soon as I could. I'm stuck on Interstate 4 <laughs> in the middle of peak season, David. That's the only reason I could call in. Well, you had you said you were interested in the movie, we could have we could have set up a time for all of us to be together. But I wasn't interested in the movie at all, and I and I sincerely hope that it is it is painful for the audience to listen to without my hilarious commentary. <laughs> but I and I mean that nicely. I mm-hmm. do, but I I have to say that seriously, a fucking tank top. Uh, yeah. Yeah. God damn it. What color was the tank top? Paint a picture for um, me. Um, it was uh, uh blue, blue, bluish, like a like a heather blue. God damn it. Yeah, that's your favorite color, isn't it? Oh god, I love blue. Mm-hmm. And especially on that light skin that he has with the dark hair. Um, would you say his armpits are more of a more of a more of a well taken care of, or is it just a forest under there what it is uh um you know those people that have just the right amount yes going on yeah ken just the right amount all right i shouldn't have asked that question because it's just gonna piss me off more i'm not gonna ask if his second toe is longer than his big toe because i don't want to know i don't want to (laughs) know fuck off david (laughs) This is the end, I feel like, ladies and gentlemen. Oh dear listeners, this is this is the this is the the bridge I'm not willing to cross. <laughs> I fear there's no going back, that's for sure. Oh. No going back. And even <laughs> though you sent me the entire series of Laverne and Shirley on DVD, which I appreciate I do. I've started watching. You're welcome. I started watching, and David, what a delightful show. You're in really okay. I, this it's wow. It's, like, it's almost like a Shit's Creek for me. It's just so comfortable. And anyway, the point is, I'm mad at you, and I'm gonna get off this phone because I'm about to. I'm about to get home, and I'm I'm gonna bite my pillow. Is what I'm gonna do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, be careful. I I can I can hear all that traffic in the background. So um. Yeah. You be careful driving home. I hope this hasn't upset you to the point of causing any type of an accident. Why do you hate me? Why I just I. Why do you hate Stalker Channing? I. Why, just, why do you hate hers? Because she did Pal Joey, and that's why I hate <laughs> Stalker Channing. I, she should have. She should have had the wherewithal. To say, you know what, this ain't for me. Up now, but I'm very, very sorry you missed Ken, as I know you are too. But uh, thank you so much. I'm very glad that we can say you officially are a part of this this episode now. That that makes mm. me happy. I'm about to send him a message on the Instagram that he's not going to read for about four or five days. <laughs> I know how he is. Okay, well, sweetie, let me let you let me go, and Happy New Year to you, too. Mwah. Yes, we stopped talking about me, and I stopped listening, so <laughs> Happy New Year, asshole. Oh, shit, no! We'll make you happy. Come and knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. Where we're moving on now. We're moving on up. One, two, three, four, five, six.
that I'm compromising, enterprising, anything but tranquilizing. Here's the story.